You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Raytheon, protecting every side of cyber. Spyware, viruses, disinformation campaigns, those are just a few of the threats posed by malicious state actors, rogue hackers, and others. Our efforts to protect critical data and improve the country's cyber capabilities proceeding at a fast enough clip? On Wednesday, October 2nd, the Washington Post gathered technologists, government officials, security experts, and other leaders in cybersecurity to discuss these rapidly evolving issues. Encryption keeps data protected, but it can also impede law enforcement from doing its job. Criminals have learned to use encrypted messaging and privacy protections to cover their tracks. This scenario is often called going dark. In this segment, you'll hear from a top official at the U.S. Department of Justice about the future of encryption, privacy, and safety in the digital age. Let's listen. My name is Ellen Nakashima. I'm a national security reporter for The Washington Post. And we're very fortunate to have here today Sujit Rahman, the uh, Associate Deputy Attorney General at the J Department of Justice, and he, is, he leads on cyber issues for the department and chairs the Attorney General's Cyber Task Force. So Sujit and I are gonna have a, I think, a, a very wide-ranging, interesting conversation on one of the key issues facing us today, and that's the challenge of encryption, what the department and FBI sometime call, sometimes call going dark. So Sujit, set the table for us by describing briefly what role digital evidence plays for us today, plays for you in your criminal national security investigations. How crucial is it and how do you obtain it? Well, thank you, Ellen, and thank you for having me today. Digital evidence is critical. Um, if you're in the business of trying to enforce a rule of law system, the way that you prove cases in court is through evidence. And the reality is the world we live in today, everything is digital. Your business records are digital, your phone records are digital, often your communications themselves are digital if you're talking on the phone or via an application. Um, so for us to build cases, we need to have access to electronic evidence and digital evidence. Of course, everything we do is bounded by law. So we wanna make sure that we, in law enforcement, when we seek evidence, we're doing it in a lawful way. Part of the difficulties that we're facing now is that the way technology has developed, and obviously technology has incredibly positive benefits. Encryption is something that you know, we are in support of. Mm -hmm. If you're in the business of uh, protecting sensitive information, including government information, you wanna make sure it's secure. On the other hand, those very same technologies that protect information also make it increasingly difficult for us to gain access to it, even with court authorization. And I think that's, in a nutshell, encapsulates the going dark problem. So give us a sense, uh, how, how uh, severe a problem is it, and what, about roughly what percentage of your cases, pick up, you know, category, criminal, uh, drugs, and what percentage of those cases does, does encrypted uh, evidence pose a challenge for you? I, I think it's difficult to quantify mm -hmm. because it really depends on the nature of the case, the type of case, the type of investigation. Uh, what I can tell you is that when it comes to, for example, data in motion, so communications, um, you know, this is publicly known, many apps are end-to-end -end encrypted. And so we cannot gain access, even with a court order, to those communications. And so if people are communicating, let's say by FaceTime or by iMessage, even if we go to a judge and fulfill all of the very rigorous requirements to seek a wiretap, 
uh, under federal law, when we go try to serve the order, the companies simply cannot execute because they've designed their systems in a way that doesn't allow the interception. And so that creates tremendous uh, uh, obstacles for us when we've satisfied all the legal obligations right. to, uh, to access that evidence. So is it more than 50% now of your drug cases, would you say? Or so, it, so like I said, it really depends yeah. on the nature of the case. What I can say, uh, once WhatsApp went end-to-end -end encrypted, this is a few years ago, uh, the number of DEA wires fell precipitously. I won't get into specific numbers, but I can tell you that it was a massive drop because DEA investigators who were often running these wiretap investigations, and, and for those of you who know, when we're doing transnational organized narcotics cases, you need to be up on wires because that's how the drug dealers typically are communicating, the traffickers. Those numbers fell precipitously once WhatsApp, which is obviously a very popular uh, uh, encrypted uh, app, went end-to-end -end encrypted. So it's had a material impact on our ability to undertake our investigations. Well, so let's move into another area where we might actually see the impact of this. This past weekend, the New York Times published a major investigation on child abuse and exploitation online. The report was unequivocal. Online child abuse is rampant with no signs of stopping. And technology both supports and protects abusers. Encryption specifically has been a major roadblock for law enforcement. And in fact, Facebook recently, as you know, announced it was going to put strong encryption, end-to-end -end encryption on Messenger. So how will that affect your child abuse investigation? So it, it will have a tremendous impact. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Alan, because that is one area where we do have statistics and very clear statistics. Um, last year, around 18 million, more than 18 million tips, cyber tips, were reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So these are essentially tips that the technology providers send to NCMEC, which is a, a non-governmental organization, showing uh, evidence of child sexual abuse on their platform. So 18 million, I mean, think about that number. If Facebook end-to-end -end encrypts all of its platforms, including Facebook Messenger and Instagram, which the company has publicly said it, it will do, the estimation is that millions of those tips will go dark. And so, again, to put flesh on the bone, as I said last year, about 18 million tips, over 90% of those tips were reported by Facebook, right? So the company actually, under, under the current status quo, is doing pretty good work in trying to identify child exploitative material that's being traded on this platform. And it's supposed to report it to this non-governmental organization so that that organization can then... Can then refer it to law enforcement okay. or take appropriate action. So once NCMEC gets the tip, it gives it to state and local law enforcement or to federal law enforcement. We then follow up and try to arrest the individual. The key point here is that of those, as I said, 18 million, over 90% last year mm -hmm. were provided by Facebook. If Facebook goes end-to-end -end encrypted, essentially 70, 75% of those 16 million tips will go dark. So that is a very practical application of how not having visibility into what's happening on these platforms will have a material impact on public safety. And these are children, right? This is child sexual abuse that we're talking about. And as the New York Times article said, this is widespread. You know, the stuff that's happening on the internet now uh, is, is really pretty scary. So these companies, you know, Facebook, Apple, they've talked about the encryption that they're putting on their devices and on their platforms as a way to, uh, you know, enhance the privacy and security of their users, of everyone. And if you know, and so doing it, it affects, uh, it, it helps criminals. Well, that's uh, a little price we pay for living in a free society. How have, you know, the 
the Justice Department, the FBI, in the last three years or so, have uh, tried to uh, have a public conversation about this debate. They've, they've asked these companies to, to voluntarily try to work with them to come up with solutions uh, to, to the problem. Bill Barr, the Attorney General in, in uh, July, Fordham University, sort of repeated that call. And he said that these companies have the capability, the ingenuity, to come up with technical solutions. Where do you stand on that? Have we made you know, any headway in that debate, in that ongoing conversation with the tech companies? So it's been difficult. Um, you know, candidly, we're not looking to demonize the tech companies. We want to foster innovation. You know, these are the same companies that have created driverless cars, they've created drones, they've created wearable tech. I mean, these are the most innovative companies in the world. Mm -hmm. I think the question that we have, or the 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 call that we're like, what we'd like to make to tech, is work with us. Try to find ways to protect security, protect privacy while also factoring in that very important component of public safety. Because I think often in the conversation, that's what's forgotten. And there are, as I said, very real impacts on real people when we're not able to have visibility into what's going on in these networks. So when it comes to the companies, you know, we've been uh, reaching out. Uh, we've made efforts. The Attorney General spoke. The Director of the FBI has made multiple uh, overtures. Um, I wish the companies would do more. And that's something we're, we're working on. But we're not looking to demonize uh, the, the companies. We hope that they work with us. But on the other hand, we have an obligation to the American public to call a spade a spade. And so we're not either, you know, we're not going to go away either because this is a real uh, public safety problem. Are you considering legislation to, you know, require companies to build in uh, lawful access to? To their so what I'd say is that we're at least now, and I think this is an administration-wide position, are actively engaging with uh, the public to raise awareness of the lawful access problem, the warrant-proof encryption problem. Um, I think you'll see various parts of the government reaching out. Obviously, you've got the Department of Justice, you've got the FBI. I think the Commerce Department will be reaching out to industry shortly to talk about the need to solve and find solutions, find improvements to this problem. The Department of Homeland Security, is, uh, which has a very important cybersecurity mission, but also a very significant law enforcement mission as well. I think you'll see them publicly reaching out and trying to raise awareness of this issue. So we're at a point now where I think we're trying to make sure that the public is aware of the costs and benefits of what's going on here, because a lot of the decisions are being made by corporate executives um, for their own business purposes. But that has tremendous impacts on our public safety and our broader public policy. So that broader political conversation needs to, play, needs to take place. The only other thing I'd say, you mentioned legislation, there are other rule of law nations that have made legislative moves in this area. Last December, um, Australia, obviously a rule of law uh, partner of ours, enacted legislation um, in, this, in this context. They're still implementing it. They're still figuring out exactly what it looks like. But um, Britain also. And Britain a couple of years ago passed the IPA, the Investigative uh, Powers Act, which has certain provisions relating to uh, providing decrypted uh, information. So we run the risk in America of falling behind, actually, because our partners, our democratic rule of law partners, are starting to examine this issue because they understand that it's a very complex uh, set of uh, factors that we need to be taking, taking into account. But if those, uh, do those laws apply to U.S. companies like Facebook and Apple and Google? So, I mean, I think you'd have to ask the Australians and the, and the, and the British about that. Um, my sense is that 
they would have similar jurisdictional principles that we do. So in other words, if American companies are doing business in these countries, they subject themselves to the laws of those countries. Exactly what the mechanics are, I think it just depends. Um, and uh, my, my understanding of the Australian legislation is that it's still in a pretty early stage of implementation. Okay, so let's move on to another uh, separate but related issue that grows out of this time actual legislation that Congress mm -hmm. passed, what was it, a year ago now? About a year, March the, of 18. The Cloud Act. Yep. Uh, and that was to get at a, uh, an issue of access to data, but not necessarily encrypted data. Can you briefly sure. describe what the Cloud Act is and what so, it does? So the Cloud Act uh, was a major legislative accomplishment last year. It was bipartisan. Uh, industry was very supportive um, because many companies found themselves in an awkward position. Um, you know, they'd receive legal process from, say, the United Kingdom. Um, but they would be barred from producing data to the British government because American law had essentially a blocking function, that you couldn't produce data to a foreign government because under US domestic law, uh, those are privacy protections. You can't just produce data to anyone who asks. And so the companies found themselves in a, in a very in a difficult position, a conflict of law position, where they were under a, a legal obligation to produce data to, say, the United Kingdom, but they were forbidden by US law to produce that information. So the companies actually came to us and said, look, we're in a really tough spot here. Can you please help us? Now, we were hearing it at the Justice Department from our partners in the UK who were saying, look, we're trying to investigate a murder that took place in London. The perpetrator is British. The victim is British. Everything happened in Britain. But the guy's using a Gmail account. Mm. And so the evidence is being held by a US-based service provider. We can't do our jobs because the evidence is held outside the UK. And your law, American law, forbids Google from right. producing in response. So there were actually very interesting dynamics at play. We had foreign partners asking for help. We had industry asking for help. We had our own motivations. You know, we don't want murderers running around the streets of London. Uh, less of a concern for us, but still a significant one. And so everyone came together and in March of last year enacted the Cloud Act, uh, which essentially uh, allows for rule of law partners that we engage in bilateral executive agreements with to serve US-based service providers directly with legal process. So now instead of having to go through a, the mutual legal assistance process, a treaty-based process, treaty process, which can take a while, yeah. it take a couple of years, particularly with electronic evidence cases, uh, once these agreements come into place, say the UK can serve Google directly and receive data directly. But again, the, and the, so is that happening now, or is is this agreement in place between the U.S. and U.K.? Or so there is not any agreements in place but we're yet. About to get one. Right? Um, what I can say is the U.S. and the U.K. have been working very hard to move towards finalizing an agreement. We hear that that might even be this week. So I'm not in a position to uh, to make any announcements today. Thank you, Ellen, for asking. Um, but but I can say, look, this has been a priority. This has been a priority for us, and um, I expect there to be movement. Promptly. Perhaps even announcements. It's possible. Uh, okay. Will this apply? Will this sort of uh, bilateral agreement apply to countries like Russia and China? So, I mean, no. Uh, the straightforward answer is no, because under the statute, and this is this was part of the, the negotiations. You know, when we were trying to get this legislation enacted in Congress, uh, we had very positive uh, conversations with uh, the civil rights community, civil society community, and obviously with with congressional staff as well to make it clear that this ex direct exchange of data should only occur with rule of law countries that protect privacy, that honor civil, liber civil liberties, and have protections in place. And so if you look at the law, there's actually a catalog of factors that the Attorney General has to certify that country X meets these standards 
before he can engage in one of these bilateral uh, executive agreements. So the short answer is uh, totalitarian countries have no business entering into these agreements, and we will not engage in negotiations yeah. with them. Great, and time has flown by so quickly. We have only a few seconds left. Do you have any other announcements to make maybe about enc uh, encryption going dark, what the department is about to do this week, any plans? Yeah, so on Friday, uh, we're hosting a public uh, summit at Department of Justice headquarters, although we'll also be live streaming it, so for those of you who can't make it, uh, on lawful access, on the question of warrant-proof encryption and the impact it has, particularly on child exploitation cases. Ellen, to get to your question at the outset. So we, we anticipate a very high profile event. The Attorney General will be there, uh, the FBI Director will speak, and we have two very special guests uh, from uh, around the world. The Which British, countries? The British Home Secretary, uh, Ms. Patel, will be there, and the Australian Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton. So uh, trying to send a message that rule of law countries will stand together on this issue, that when it comes to access to information, uh, we're united on making sure that we protect privacy, that we protect civil liberties, but that we also keep public safety imperatives in mind as well. Great. All right, well, thank you very much, you. Sujit, for that. And let's thank him and move on to our final segment. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.